how was crap out? Crap out was good. It was uh, that was my uh, third one, I think. No, fourth one. Yeah, fourth. And it just was a continuation of back in the '90s. I had a it was called the Sweet Dogs Rock and Roll Party birthday. I started in uh, 1998 when the Chucker was around. We did it there every year, and I just changed the name. I don't even know. It's a horrible name. I don't even know why I called it that. Well, I do, but... And it's just, you know, a continuation of me getting my friends' bands that I like in to, to celebrate. It's not even really about me. It's just I want everybody to have a good time. This year, I did for the Crap Out 4. I brought in some poetry readers, which I thought went well. That's the first time I've ever seen poetry done in Egan's. I mean, you could hear a pin drop in there. It was the quietest I've ever heard. But a good kind of quiet? It was a good kind of quiet, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think people enjoyed it. You know, a lot of the MFA creative writer people hang out in there. I thought it was a good balance, you know, poetry. And then I had uh, Blaine Duncan play an acoustic song to kind of segue into the rock and roll. Yeah. And so I think it was, a, it was a success. Yeah, so you want those events to have that kind of variety. You don't want it to just be a straight rock show the whole time. Exactly, because people tend to get worn down on rock and roll. I know I do. You can only take so much. Maybe I think I'm going to trim it back next time I do it because, it, you know, it, it ran a little long in the end. Maybe just have three bands instead of four. But, yeah, I think everybody had a good time. See, now we have coming up the Ham Ham Jam Jam. So it seems like they have these kind of events going on where these vet musicians in Tuscaloosa sort of put together these big shows. Why do you think it's important for you guys to sort of lead the charge in that way? It seems like these things wouldn't happen unless you and Ham and other veteran musicians made them happen and organized them. These bands might not sort of come together themselves to do it. Oh, that's good. I think, you know, Ham's been here a long time. I've been here definitely a long time. I think we're just fans of the younger bands. You know, uh, we like to see younger bands do well and push themselves. I mean, at least I know I do. I know Ham does, too, because Ham plays a lot more than just about anybody I know in town. He's probably playing tonight. But, uh, (laughs) yeah, um, we just like to see new talent come along. And, uh, you know, one show equals ten practices. So, that, that that's what at least I think. And the more you play out, the more confident you get in, in your, yourself or your unit if you're in a band or you know solo artist. The more shows you play, the more comfortable you feel with yourself. When you play a show, things aren't always going to go like they do in practice. You may have some technical difficulties. It puts you on the spot under the microscope, so to say, like, oh, here comes my part. I got to do it and just sit in practice. I need to do it right. The, the more you do that, the more it instills confidence in, in your band, you know. I'll give you an example. When the Dexteens went to Europe, I think it was, we went three times. I think it was the, the second time when John Smith got hurt, we had to fly him home uh, about two or three shows into the tour because he had, he had a head injury. So Nicholas had to step up and, you know, learn, learn, his, learn John's role. And we didn't have any practices. We had to learn it during the show. So, but it only took about two shows and he got it. So that's that's what I mean. Tell me real quick, just to kind of sidetrack, you mentioned Dexatine's going to Europe. How does a band end up going to Europe? Somebody from Alabama or even from the U.S. sort of in general. You hear about some bands that have these European tours. Is there a certain kind of like status you have to reach as a band, or is that a decision that you all sort of collectively make to say, hey, we might have an audience over there. Why don't we just give it a shot? Well, fortunately for us at that time, we were on a label called Estrus, who has been around for many years and had a built-in following. You know, that's a garage label, garage rock and roll label based out of Bellingham, Washington. You know, they put out bands like Man or Astro Man and, uh, of course, the Dexteen's big hero band, Quadrajets, and uh, many others, you know, that were in the similar kind of, you know, Reckless abandon, you know, you always see that in articles, I mean, whatever that means, like, 
but like just rock and roll. So when those records got released on Estrus, they were distributed in Europe. Well, the first tour, we kind of did it ourselves, but then after that, it caught on. But we were fortunate enough to be on, on Estrus, which had a status to get us over there. Was that a good time, I would imagine? I would say uh, the first two times were really good because the first time we broke even, which is making it. Second time, we made money. And then third time, we just lost it all. Lost a lot of money, but we had switched promoters and, and, you know, I mean, you talk to any band that goes to Europe, not every tour is a success. I mean, I've had many conversations with Dan Hall from the Woggles, you know, sometimes they lose money. They've been around since like the eighties, you know, it just depends on a lot of things. So it's not always, you know, as I say, popcorn pillows and, and blankets. I know it's kind of weird, but it's not, it's not always a rose garden. Sometimes you're going to have a, a loss. What kind of cities did you play over there? Oh, the first time we just did the UK. I'll give you a breakdown. The first time we did the, just the UK, we, we, we were like home-based out of Glasgow. Because we, what we did the first time was piggyback with another band that was kind of similar to us. And we just split the cost because were, we were riding in their van, sharing their gear. And uh, so we started in Glasgow and we, we worked our way down to London. So we hit like Glasgow, Newcastle, Aberdeen. Did a couple shows in London because it's big enough where you're not going to you know, overkill it. The second tour was the Red Dust Rising tour, and that was our best tour because we did we did the UK again, and we did Spain. Spain was really great. We did you know Madrid, Barcelona. We did a really cool town in the northwest corner called La Coruña, which was you know not non-Mediterranean. It was more Atlantic kind of feel. So we did UK and Spain on the second tour. Then the third tour, we did the UK again. We did France, Belgium, and Netherlands. The big show for us is we got to open up for. Uh, Queensryche. That may have been the second tour. I can't remember, but it, it all runs together. But yeah, the, the Queensryche tour was, I mean, the Queensryche show was pretty, pretty big. Good time? It was a good time. Yeah? Yeah. Well, I mean, at least you can say, like, if you didn't make money on one of these tours or if you broke even, which, like you said, is a success unto itself, you got to play Europe. You got to tour Europe. And that's something that I know a lot of people, musicians, can't it, really say that they've done so yeah, far. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's not, it's not as easy as, I mean, it's a grind, you know. I mean, yeah. It's not vacation. It's not vacation. Like, yeah, we went to Europe, but we really didn't see a whole lot. I mean, right. It's like you, you travel and you get jammed inside of a club. And then, you know, yeah, you meet some cool friends and that's cool. And, but, you know, it's not like we got like three, four days off to go hang out and go look at Stonehenge or anything, you know. But, I mean, we did drive by. I remember we played a Renaissance festival we're the only american band there we played in wales and the next show we played in exeter england which is a big university town and then then the next day we were going to london but so the 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 road between exeter and london drives right by stonehenge and i remember being in the van we're all just laid back our driver goes here here comes stonehenge right here here it is we just raised up and went cool and then we laid back down so we saw it through a wind you know side of a window Would you would you say that a trip like that pays off, if not monetarily, do you look back and say, well, that was a good idea, that was a good experience? Did you notice any sort of like European following that developed as a result of it? Is it something that you would do again if you were in your in those shoes again, if you could go back? Oh, yeah, I definitely think it's great. I mean, especially when you go to some place like Spain and you look out in the crowd and they're singing the words to your songs, it really makes it worth it. You know, and we did some radio interviews up there and uh, up in Bilbao, which is up in the North Park area on their public radio. I mean, we played like a, a city hall in one town like where they turned the city hall into a rock and roll venue. And we played some really dumpy places that make Egan's look like Indian Hills. So, um, 
<laughs> I mean, I'm talking like vegetation coming out of the urinals and stuff. But it, it was a great experience. I, you know, if, if anybody can do it, I mean, it, you, it's a gamble. You know, you, you may break even, you may lose money, you may gain a little money. But in the end, I think collectively, it's a great experience for a band. It, it, I think you really find yourself as a band away from away from your town and support group. You know. Well, I definitely want to get back to the Dexteens and sort of work our way up there. But before I forget about this, I read this article on Mississippi Folk Life about your experiences with blues artists and essentially as a blues musician and going on the road with folks like T-Model Ford. And I wanted to bring him up specifically because there was this part in this story that I just thought was hilarious and just fascinating where you were playing a little too fast or playing a little too differently at a live show. And he had to stop you mid-show and sort of call you out in front of everybody. And that made for, I guess, what you kind of considered an awkward moment, but a learning experience. If you could just sort of go back, rewind. Yeah, that was like my second or third show ever with T-Model. It was at the Bowery Ballroom in New York City. It was a packed crowd. You know, I got got thrown into the fire playing with those guys. It wasn't something that I chose to do because you know what do i know i'm not a blues drummer per se but his drummer couldn't make it i think he was ill so i to simplify the touring arrangement i just did it and uh playing with t-model is not it's not that easy yeah you think it'd be easy you can ask any drummer that's played with him you know because a lot of times he rolls over into the one so you have to kind of lay off a hit and then catch it on the way back but i just remember when you play a gig, and I was playing with T-Model at the Bowery, usually after one or two songs, you can kind of tell, oh, this show's going to be great, everything's settled in. That's what I was thinking, you know. I was like, oh, it's great. But about third song into it, he stops and turns around, you know, starts mumbling something. And like I said, it was like, oh, my God, I just, you know, you ain't beating right, I think is what he said on the mic. And so I, like, I can't, you know, I signaled the sound guy to play some house music. And I came out behind the drums and kneeled next to him. He sits, like, right in front of me. And the first thing I do is I take the microphone and I push it away from his face because, you know, he talks. I don't want everybody to hear. They get off on that. And I was just like, hey, what's going on, you know? And I, I was a nervous wreck because, you know, I'm in front of seven, 800 people, you know, just me and him. <laughs> I've never heard this word before, but, you know, he's like, you're putting too many riffles in the beat. I, I think what he's meaning was I was dragging the stick across the snare. It's just making that vibration kind of noise, you know. And uh, I remember, you know, I'm sitting there like, okay, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, because, you know, I'm kind of like a deer in headlights at this point. And, it's, and, you know, he's sitting there drinking his Jack Daniels. He's looking at me with this devilish kind of look, you know, because he can be really intense. And... um and I remember the guy that did it before me, Amos Harvey, who went on to do many great tour manager. He's a pro tour manager. I was just kind of a brand new guy. And he, he told me you have to use a lot of psychology on these fellas. So keep in mind, I'm kneeling next to him. I've never left. And I just look at T-Mile and I said, hey, I just got back. I just talked to the manager of the club. I never left. I'm there next to him all the T-Mile goes, oh, yeah, what'd he say? He said, he told me to tell you to play four more songs with the messed up beat or we're not getting paid tonight. He, was, he said that? And I was like, yeah. He said, all right, then. So I got the microphone. I put it back in his face. I got back on the drums. And we knocked out four more songs. Because the reason I said four more songs, that's about an hour because he plays so long. And we pulled the show off. It was great. I ended up uh, hanging out with some nice folks afterwards. Once I got them to the room, they're like, how did you get through it? How do you do all that? And I said, it's my first time. <laughs> well, but it seems like a drummer or a musician, you guys play so many styles. You know so many styles. You've trained and you know, you've learned all, all sorts of different things. Is there a certain language that 
all musicians can speak that way. Like you said, you didn't know the word riffle necessarily, but was it a thing where you could adapt that night and become comfortable with it to where you could play that for the rest of the tour, or was there going to be a huge learning curve from that point on? I mean, did it go smoothly after that? Oh, yeah, yeah, it does, but you got to keep in mind, T-Model, you know, he, he likes that Jack Daniels. Matt Patton and I would always talk about this, like, because we're, we're rhythm section guys, and we, we kind of came up together. One out of every four shows with T-Model is a disaster. I've seen him waste a whole set tuning his guitar and, and, you know, not getting paid for it because he's on stage, you know, tuning for an hour. I mean, I've been in the worst situations with these guys than anything I've ever been in. But at the same time, it's the most rewarding, you know, pulling a show off with these guys. Is it going to be a bust? Is it going to be successful? Is it going to be half-cocked? You know, like, it's, it's always uh, challenging with those guys. That, that, that's interesting because you said he likes his Jack Daniels and that might affect his performance. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? And that's yeah, I think, what he, could I think le- later on he got endorsed by Jack Daniels because he, I mean, he was, he plugged it was a it every show. He had a bottle fit on his amp, you know, and he plugged it every show. It's like, this is my closest imitation I can get to him, you know, because when I first had him, he, he didn't have many teeth. And then later they got him some fake teeth. But it was always, it's Jack Dangy time. He couldn't say Daniels, it's Jack Dangy, you know. So, but that could lead to a disastrous show. Oh, yeah. Well, is that something that you've always tried to be mindful of as a musician or people that you've played with before where you can't let something like that directly affect the show? Are there people out there who think it might enhance it for them personally and for the audience? Or do you think that it could lead to negative results most of the time? I think most of the times it leads to negative results. Having a little, I mean, timing it and spacing it out just right may work, and it does work sometimes. But, you know, when it comes to alcohol, it's hard to control that. I mean, I've been guilty of it a few times. I've drank too much. One time I, I was with Paul Jones. Patton and I played with Paul Jones a lot. He's another blues guy. He was a little younger. He could at least stand up and walk the floor. He was really great. This is before I got Matt Patton to play with Paul Jones. It was, in I think, outside of Albuquerque. Paul and I were playing a blues festival at a country and western set where they make movies, where they had, you know, the saloon doors and all that. And they had, like, two stages set up on both sides of this movie set. The heat out there in the West is different. You, know, you don't sweat as much. It, it sucks it out of you more internally. And the, the beer that they were serving there was like from a local brewery, and it was like this heavy, dark beer. And I was, you know, drinking my normal little pace. And I about fell out. You know, I had to get somebody else to finish the show for me because, I, I mean, at least I recognized, hey, I can't do it, and I got somebody else to do it who, who I knew that could do it. So, yeah, alcohol, it can be a good thing, but mostly it's a bad thing. Well, let's talk about growing up a little bit. You're from Laurel, Mississippi, right? Yeah. Okay. And so you moved to Gulf Shores how soon after you were born? Uh, 10 years. I think I moved there in 82. So you spent about about a decade in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And is that when you started to sort of get into music? Yeah. My father owned a couple of record stores when I was a kid, and I remember coming home to the record store and uh, I used to just love reading album credits that's that's my big was my big thing I think I read more album credits than I did listen to music and I, I just have a fascination with who played on what and that kind of stuff so I mean at an early age in Mississippi is, is when I was really into music this was probably what in like the 80s or early yeah, 80s yeah 80s like 1980 when yeah. I was about eight years old yeah. well, what yeah. kind of music were you listening to at that point no oh, just stuff that was on the radio like classic rock was pretty big that time you know like uh I don't know, uh, uh, like uh, Rick Springfield, uh, stuff like that, you know, 80 stuff. Um, the Knack, you know, stuff like that. That was pretty big around, you know, 79, 80, ELO, Boston. You know, you're just you're running the mill classic rock. 
was your dad into that kind of music or was he into older stuff? No, he was into that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So was it more of a progressive household, would you say? Like, I mean, in terms of you're being able to listen to pretty much whatever you wanted. Yeah, he, wanted. I mean, yeah, I, I could, I mean, I remember taking home Kiss records. Uh, and he, he'd always, yeah, take it, you know, and I had all those Kiss records and I had all the solo Kiss records, you know, uh, and he was all for it. Was it a religious household at all that you no, grew up in? No, no, not at all. No, didn't go to church? Well, we went sometimes, but it wasn't like, you know, that's something you, we did every, you know, uh, maybe on special holidays and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, would you say that you started getting into music or playing music anyway when you were younger, or was that when you were a teenager? No, yeah, it was when I was, I, I started late, my early 20s. I, I, something I always wanted to do, like in high school, I'd always be beating on the steering wheel in my car, a little truck or whatever, but... It wasn't until I, you know, I got out of the Marines is when I started, like when I bought a drum set, I finally, you know, just came to the realization, let's just get one. So I got one in 1994 was uh, about when I got out of the Marines. And then I bought a bought a drum set and I moved back to home to Gulf Shores and then moved to Tuscaloosa in 95. And then I traded that drum set in for a better one at Decade Music. There was a good used music store it used to be here. And then uh, that's when I started playing in bands. 1995 here in Tuscaloosa. You, you went to Foley High School, yeah, right? Yeah. And you never picked up an instrument at nope, that point. No. But never. you had, you sort of had the, the inclination to do that, but you just never really followed through. Never, I just never followed through. You know, I mean, it was always kind of right on the cusp. You know, like, oh man, I, should, I really want. If I do anything, I'd be a drummer. You know. <laughs> But I didn't do it till I got out of the Marines. I no mean, marching band. No marching band. What what kind of what kind of kid were you back in high school? a jock jock really yeah played sports i played sports what i played sports? football at foley high school okay uh, you know i'll give foley a plug great players came out of there julio jones kenny stabler tj fluker robert lester they all came from foley i, I was a jock you know i just i love playing football did you have any sort of like thought about musicians even when you were a jock or was it even on your mind at all like, no i mean i was more of a fan of the music uh-huh. like uh more uh, more of a fan less than a player you know, I'd always sound like, oh, I think playing drums would be would be cool if I if I was going to do it, but uh, I didn't really come around to it. Like I said, till like '94. Did you join the Marines right out of high school? I went to junior college one semester. Okay, and why did you join the Marines? I was just didn't have any direction. I didn't know what I was going. You know, I I don't know. <laughs> I just went. It was just something to do, or you needed the, you you knew you needed the direction. And I needed direction. It. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how was that? I mean, you're in there four years active duty. I did four years active duty, and then I did eight years reserve right after that. I did about twelve total. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so you were dedicated. Oh yeah. yeah. What'd you like about it? Well, I liked you know travel. I had a good job. I was an amphibious tractor crewman, which is a floating tank. You know, I was a driver for one of those. I was always at sea. I did two tours of Somalia before Black Hawk Down, and then I went back after Black Hawk Down. I landed all over the Horn of Africa, been in the Philippines. Just, uh, I, I just loved it. I love the Marines. The, the only reason I got out was because the job that I was in at that time, I, this is when I was a reservist. I did four active, about eight in the reserves. It was hard to get promoted, and like the only way you can get promoted is if people were, were getting out and nobody was getting out, so I was kind of just stuck there. And, you know, I've done, you know, I've already did active duty. I've done enough years in reserves, and I was just like, ah, let me just get out of here. Yeah, how was so. Somalia? I mean, people will hear that, and they probably think, obviously, Black Hawk Down, or they think other things about it. 
there are certain connotations, obviously, with it being dangerous. I mean, did you find it to be that when you were over oh, there? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Somalia is probably one of the most uh, – one of the moments I'll probably remember the rest of my life because, uh, you know, I don't talk about it much, but, you know, I was in a couple of skirmishes over there, and, uh, you know, I was a young 20-year-old, 21-year-old at the second time. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that unit I was in, we still talk to this day. Most of them are state troopers. But, yeah, we still talk to this day, and we always talk about our time in Mogadishu and uh, this other town called Bardera, which we spent less, a little south of there. And, uh, yeah, I mean, 10 months, that's a long time to be in the Horn of Africa. Like, I know nothing about Iraq. I, I wasn't in Iraq. I mean, I was in the service when Desert Storm Shield was going on, but I, I wasn't there either, but... I was in uh, I was in Somalia. But you can look back and say you had a you enjoyed your time in the Corps, right? Yeah, and I had uh, yeah oh yeah. The thing about Somalia was I had two cassette tapes to get me through, and they're <laughs> they're pretty special to me. Which ones? Me and Patton talk about this. I had uh, Morrissey, Your Arsenal just came out, and the other one was that band, The Sundays, Blind. I was naming that out, and. Uh, you know, when I hear those those songs off those two records, it, it kind of gets brings me back to uh, being there. Yeah, that's all the that the, they had to sell at the little exchange left over when I went to go get some music was Morrissey, Your Arsenal, and The Sunday's Blind. <laughs> <laughs> so Morrissey is always going to have something you know mean something to you. Well, just that album. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's I caught Morrissey <laughs> and when he came to Birmingham not too long ago. Yeah, were you there for that? No, I wasn't. Yeah, he. He had to cancel a Birmingham show like a decade before that, and he remembered it and brought it up at the show and says, I'm sorry I had to cancel the show here in Birmingham. I thought, that's not bad, Morrissey. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. So you got out of the Marine Corps, and is that when you came to Tuscaloosa and enrolled at UA? Yeah, yeah. I just switched over into the reserves because uh, when I was living here, going to school, I was still in the Marine Reserves. I'd, I'd go to, my unit was in New Orleans. I went to New Orleans once a month for – like I said, eight years, one weekend a month for eight years. And uh, I came to Tuscaloosa in 95, played in some horrible bands. <laughs> well, did you come to Alabama because it was a place you always wanted to come? Were you a fan of the football team, or was it just the logical progression? No, I, I was dating a girl that was that went up here. I just kind of followed her up here. She was from Gulf Shores. I've known her a long time, and uh, I just followed her up here. I, I, you know, I didn't know anything much about Alabama except, you know, like, you know, Bear Bryant and football, right? And that kind of stuff. But no, it wasn't the reason why I came up here. It was a girl. Yeah, if she would have went to Auburn, I probably would have followed her there. <laughs> well, thank goodness then. <laughs> yeah, thank God. Yeah. So you said you played in some bad bands, and this was before you formed the Dexatines. Yeah. Oh yeah. So what led to forming the Dexatines? What kind of bands were you playing in? Oh, I played in this band. We were called Virga. We we sounded like a. I don't know, just bad. It was like, uh, it was kind of trying to be like Sonic Youth, but we couldn't even get that right. <laughs> but then before that, I was in this band called, I love it, it's a horrible name. We were called Consumption. We, we sounded like Seven Mary Three. You know, the total of those singers that go, yeah, you know, yeah, like that kind of band. But, I, but you know, Everybody in those my early bands, they were in the same. But it was like we're just glad to be in a band, do something. You yeah. know, it's not like we're horrible because those guys. You know, we were all just bad. Well, you were a late bloomer too, and you got your first drum set. You mentioned were you a natural at it, or is it something you really had to work towards? I think I had to. Work, yeah, I mean, I had to work. I mean, it took me a good ten years before I got it. Got. I mean, 
I didn't really get good until I started playing with the blues guys because back then it was just like whoever you know I was like I'm if I'm the loudest and I'm the best you know that you just can't be like that. Was that your mindset? Too? Oh, that was my. I just drowned everybody out. You know, hey, look at me. I'm back here making all this noise. That doesn't do any good. But you could keep a beat though. Yeah, I used to rush through things, but it, you know, kind of uh, I'd rush the beat a little bit. But like I said, around 2000, yeah, it took me a good five years, six, five six years to really settle down. When I started playing with the blues guys, learned to listen for the song and not play too much, you know. And that was after Texas Hands, right? No, I was about uh, about the same time. So yeah, they ran concurrently. But see, keep in mind during my time in the Dex Teens, we didn't play a whole lot Uh live. We made a lot of records, but we didn't. Matt Patton and I played more with Paul Jones than Matt Patton and I did in the Dex Teens, per se. Like. uh, Paul Jones did way more shows than the Dex Teens did in my time in the band. So that's where Pat and I really grew, was uh, playing with Paul Juan Jones. So how'd you meet Matt? Oh, I knew Matt when he was a teenager. Uh, I met Matt when I first came up here. Matt worked at Vinyl Solution. Elliot worked at Vinyl Solution. Elliot also worked at Guitar Gallery. But I met Matt at hanging out at Vinyl, I mean, at Vinyl Solution. It was a record store. A lot of musicians hung out in there. And, yeah. and this is how I met Matt. I was like... No, you're in a band. He told me he was in a band. They were, he was selling – his band was on a cassette. He was in a band called Model Citizen, mm-hmm. which the, the original Model Citizen. I've, I've seen many incarnations. But they were, the original Model Citizen with Matt was, was ska-based, kind of. You know, nobody thinks about that. It was kind of reggae ska, you know, kind of like the specials or something. But he'll probably get on to me for saying that, but I don't care. <laughs> I love you, Matt. But um, I, I, he said uh, – Oh, I'm in a band called Model Citizen. Uh, I said, oh, when y'all playing? He goes, oh, we're playing tonight in Montevallo. And I was like, I'll be there. And uh, I came to the show. And uh, they played at Barnstormers Pizza, a little <laughs> pizza place in Montevallo. And it was great. I mean, that's the first time I, 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 that's when I really got to know Matt was that night hanging out up there. He rocking out on his guitar and falling over the drums. It was nice. So when did this sort of naturally become the Dexatines? When did you guys start to put your heads together and make that band? Around uh, spring of 98, yeah. Elliot was in a band called the Phoebes, mm-hmm. based after Phoebe Cates from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. They were a really good band. They played all over town. I was in a band called Verga. Matt was in a band called Model Citizen. And, you know, Matt was always, Matt gets along with everybody. And uh, Elliot and I always had friction back then uh, when we were young. We got along, but I don't know. He probably hated my band. And I really didn't like the Phoebes, you know. Uh, I grew to like them later, but uh, it was, you know, well, they ain't nothing. You know, I'm sure he said the same thing. So it was know. just like a competitive thing. Yeah, it was a competitive thing. You know, when you get older, it's not about that. I used to think it was all about that, you know. But through time, Elliot and I and Matt, we all became friends, hanging out, talking about, you know, let's do a band and. And then after the Phoebes, Elliot was in this band called The Things, which was a three-piece band. And the rhythm section of that band had to, they graduated and had to move on. So originally it was going to be Patton and I with Elliot just going to keep going, doing The Things. And we went to my my house. I had a little, I had a decent-sized bedroom. And we, we set up in there and started practicing. And <clears throat> Elliot was like, I think we ought to just ch- go with a different band. I said, that's cool, whatever, you know. And um he came up with the name, the Dexatines, uh, in, in, in there. And then we started adding more members later. You know, uh, the, the original Dexatines is uh, Elliot, Matt, and myself. We're the original three. And then we brought in uh, 
I can't remember what order it was. If we brought in John first or Craig first, uh, Craig Gates and John Smith. But anyway, the, the original five is Elliot, Matt Patton, myself, Craig Gates, and John Smith. And how long did you guys play together? That five-piece lineup probably played for about two, three years. Uh-huh. And uh, we did that teenager recording out. We got a record out you can only get in England. You can't get it in the States. It's called Teenager. It's how was that? How was that? Exactly. Eight-song EP. Uh, when we played over there, Elliot set all that up. I can't even remember what, what label it is that put it out. He'll know better than I. I can't even remember. Was that a live show or no? Some stuff we did. That's how I got my job at uh, Fat Possum. We went, we went, we went and recorded in in Water Valley. We 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 did a bunch of songs and, and nothing really happened to those songs. So we just sat on them for a long time. We recorded, you know, the headphones self titled album and then Red Dust Rising. So, you know, when we went to tour Europe, you got anything? Like, yeah, we did a record a long time ago. Nothing ever happened to it. And then that's how that came out. It's called Teenager. I think it's uh-huh. an eight song EP or something. You said that there was friction between the two of you. Would you still look back at the Dexatines and playing shows and recording as much as you guys did? Would you look back and remember those days fondly? Oh, yeah. I mean, all of us still get along. I mean, you mean it's it, it, being in a band. It's like being married. You're going to have your tough times. You're going to have your your bad times and stuff. And <clears throat> towards the end, I mean, I just had a lot of personal stuff going on. Like I, I went through like five deaths in my family. I just bottomed out and I wasn't very happy to be around. So <clears throat> it was good for me to just to get out of it, yeah. you know, and, and kind of find myself. But yeah, you know, I think when, yeah, when Matt got married, we were all, you know, a lot of us were hanging out and carrying on like we did when we were in the band, you know, it's like, it's a band, you know, people just, it's not all, it's not all fun all the time. So you ran into the reality of creative differences. I mean, was that is that usually what sparked the friction? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, or was it just still that competitive thing that you were talking about before? Is that just something that sort of permeated throughout the whole thing? No, I just think I, I just think I bottomed out with you know with yeah. uh, personal personal stuff like you know my father had died during that time. My stepmom, my uncle, mm-hmm. uh, Elliot and I's good friend Ben died and. Mm-hmm. It all happened within like under eight months, and you know I just crashed out. And it, you know I talk to Elliot all the time on campus. Everything's fine. I, I, we we see each other, hugs. No, there's no friction. So once you stopped playing in the Dexatines and you sort of needed that time to yourself, where did you go from there, professionally, musically? Well, I, you know when I was still in, I was in the Sweet Dog experience, right? But that was going on while I was in the Dexatines around '06. So I just picked up that more, and then uh, I played in a band with Chet Wisey, who was in the Quadrajets. We were called Silver Lions. We did some shows, but no, uh, I kind of got got away from music for a little while and uh, started doing archaeology, which went from one rock business to the other. You know. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's what I've been doing. You know, that's my new obsession. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to go back to something you said in an interview we d- did before, and you were talking about. Sweet Dog Experience. I don't know if you call it SDX or just Sweet Dog Experience. No, it's SDX. Okay. Right. Well, you, you were talking about Taylor playing with him and how well you guys sort of got along and you had an instant chemistry. They really worked. And you said, he has never thrown me a mean look and I've never thrown one to him on stage. I've given and received many mean looks from other band members, but with him, we just sort of play off each other in the moment and laugh. Yeah, that's true. We've never given each other a mean look ever. I mean, Elliot and I have certainly exchange mean looks t-mall and i have probably more than that paul has given me mean looks i mean what, i mean what's usually causing mean looks like that? oh just, just you, just you know not communicating on stage or well just like stepping on somebody's like you know playing too loud that'd be my thing 
botching up a drum fill or, you know, or hitting the wrong notes or not wanting to stand center stage. It's just a number of things, you know. But with Taylor and I, I don't know why we've never, when I mean, we, we, you know, like I said, we've been in a band, we've had some friction before, Who, you know, you're going to have it. But when we're on stage, all that goes to the wayside. We're there to perform for a crowd, you know, like they didn't pay to see people bicker on stage. They, they, they want to hear the songs, and that's what I try to get at. Yeah, one of my favorite things I've seen locally is a video, I think, that you guys did with Well That's Cool, and it's you and Taylor sitting on a couch. He's playing a little guitar, and then you're playing, uh, you're just sort of keeping a beat, and y'all play this song, I think it's called Gift Cards. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's just some folks in the background just listening to you. Just yeah, that was, that was at Well That's Cool. I was playing Snare and Brushes, Okay. and Taylor was playing that uh, Hollow Body. Yeah, that, that's the first time we've ever done anything like that live, you know, and... Uh, you know, we do got a new album coming out, SDX, our, our debut record. Uh, this label called Team Love is putting it out. It's, it's, it's one of the best things I've ever been. A, Taylor and I, we, we did a great job on this record. We're both proud of it. It's called Pawn and Gun. And uh, SDX, we recorded that in Memphis with the guy that we played it crap out. Jack Oblivion recorded it in memphis so as soon as i find out the information about the release date i'll let you know yeah is that is that track gonna be on there uh gift cards didn't make it oh man but we're gonna do it though i mean we'll, we play it live that's you know. a great song we're playing june 1st sdx at uh green bar opening for lee baines oh nice that'd be a, that'd <laughs> so be a fantastic show. that's gonna be a great show but we're really proud of this uh sdx pawn and gun record on there and you don't have a you, no eta just yet on when that's going to be available not yet, but it's it, it's it, we we've turned it in and and it's it's definitely coming out. And this is something you're still pretty passionate about. This oh group. yeah, I mean this record's great. In the last we talked, you were a and tell me if you're still doing this. You said a field technician with Pan American Consultants in Tuscaloosa doing survey work and excavations all over the southeast. And yeah, that's related uh, to archaeology. I yeah, guess? yeah, 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 yeah. That's uh, what you call cultural resource management. It's uh, it's not the academic type. It's more of uh, when you build a building or build a highway, you have to go in there and survey it. Yeah, you know, you're obligated by law to do that. That's the kind of work that I do. Right now, I'm with a new company called Terra Explorations. It's a new CRM firm here in town, and uh, they do the same thing. You know, survey do survey work like you know pipelines and buildings they also do architectural history and so i've been with them for about a year now yeah so what got you into that well you know like when i was you know uh, went through all the tragedy with my yeah. family and stuff i was just bottomed out and my friend got me on uh, that used to work at pan american got me hired on there as a field technician and uh, i just took it from there you know i've been doing it almost five five years now yeah yeah well, and so you you're, you've been in Tuscaloosa for what close to fifteen years? Now? No longer than that. Maybe twenty. Yeah, close to twenty. Yeah. About eighteen. You happy here, sticking around? Oh yeah, I love it here. I've been here a long time. What do you like about Tuscaloosa? I like it because it's uh, you can get anywhere you want to in under twenty minutes. Crime's not too bad, and I, you know I know a lot of people here in town just from being here. It's uh, I, I love this town. Yeah, you like the music? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and again, you talked a little bit more about getting the new people going and like seeing them sort of energize and giving them a forum or a, a stage to sort of showcase themselves. Do you feel any sort of pressure to do that? I mean, if you see that they're not doing it themselves, I mean, do you do you see yourself as sort of a mentor for the younger artists out there? I don't think so. I, I I'm just a fan of music. I like to take for example Blaine Duncan. Yeah, I remember when he could barely take the stage. He, you know, I love Blaine Duncan. I'm a great fan. I like this. I'm glad he's making records. And uh, 
he makes great records. I, I just remember I like to watch people improve. I'm all for people to do to do well. And like I remember when, when you know I I've sat in with Blaine Duncan a few times you know, as a drummer for hire, and and he's come a long way. And I'm so I'm you know I, my passion is watching people that stick with it and get better, not people that you know yeah we're all this and they get up there and they can't deliver and then it's over and then it's like what is that about i just like to see people that just stick with it blaine duncan's definitely stuck with it seems like a lot of people will do that though they will sort of just get up there for a short time and then you never really hear from them again yeah like (laughs) hey man what's up with your man oh man i'm working at the hospital oh i'm not a man anymore you know like okay you were all about it about six months ago. I mean, it's that kind of stuff, you know. I, I think the the best the best actions is playing the shows and not talking about it. Yeah, you know, actually getting out there and doing it. Getting out there and doing it. Yeah. That says more to me or to more to anybody than than talking it up. Yeah, I'm gonna do this. Of course, you know. On the flip side, I've been that guy. Do you so. think it's easy to do that though? I mean, is there a certain hurdle you've got to jump in terms of like say fear of performing? Stage fright, that kind of thing. Actually, getting up and executing this concept that you've had for so long, that you ha- that you have talked about for so long, where you have talked to good game, and when it's time to sort of walk the walk, would you say it's a lot easier than people realize to actually just get out there and do it? It's tough. I mean, if it was easy, everybody'd be doing it. Uh-huh. But uh, I mean, I I still get nervous. I'm sure everybody, no matter where I play, even in town where I know everybody. I mean, I always I get nervous. I think that's good. You know, when 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 you stop getting nervous, you know, I think you stop caring because you're like, oh, I'm just gonna get the money. Speaking of money, there is no money in music. So, <laughs> I mean, that's a labor of love for me. Like, yeah. I'm not trying to, you know. I mean, uh, to be honest with you, I've given up on the dream years ago. Like, trying to make it in music. Like, and I'm and I'm glad because I found I found more uh, fulfillment in doing, you know, like uh, cultural resource work. You know, than you know <clears throat> trying to live these big dreams. You know, I don't think anything's really gonna. It could if you you know if the everything works out and the stars align up, but. I'm over it. I just want to, you know, I like playing music with people that I like to play music with. I'm not trying to get any kind of financial gain. So when you were a young person, though, you did have that dream that everybody oh, yeah. seems to have. Yeah, I mean, I mean, before I played drums, like uh, when I was a kid, I used to have a tennis racket and I'd jump on my bed and rock out to Kiss <laughs> records. But, you know, I mean, every kid, I think, has a, has a dream like that. And then when I first got my drums and getting into the next things, I was like, oh, yeah, man, this could be really good. And it it could be, but, you know, most things just don't work out. Well, and you can say that it did. You did sort of live it out because the Dexatans certainly achieved a lot more than most local musicians are able to, especially when they're based in Tuscaloosa. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. But I'm just saying, like, were you doing it for you know, that's that's your you know right. quitting day jobs? Right. But yeah, I mean, oh man, the, the those Dexatine years, those first ten ten years, I guess I was in the band. Man, we came from nothing to playing Europe. I thought that was cool. Yeah, and playing with those blues musicians too, and sort of managing them yeah that and, may be my pinnacle achievement yeah it would be you know touring the world with them because i went way more many times with them than the dexteens i mean i went 22 times with uh various blues guys and dexteens we just did three times and so just real quick on the blues thing were you a big blues fan growing up did did something translate into that job where you were really super into blues you playing blues music at any point in your life or just listening to it how did how exactly did you find yeah, yourself i did doing not know it? the first thing about i'm from mississippi too i mean yeah i knew the basics you know howling wolf muddy waters that kind of thing right but with those blues guys that 
you know, Fat Possum to me, I think is way cooler. No, I didn't. I mean, I, I found out about it, you know, but I think that's one of the reasons why I got selected to do it because I wasn't a fanatic about that kind of blues, you know? Mm-hmm. Same goes later. After those guys died off, you know, T-Models, he, he's still alive, but he's, he's not in good health. He, you know, he's, I don't think he even performs anymore, but I started doing foreign bands coming over here as a tour manager. I did a really good band from Japan called Guitar Wolf. I did two tours with them, and I think I did the reason I did pretty well with them was I wasn't a fan of Japanese punk rock. You know, I'm not wrapped up in it. That way, I can concentrate. Mm-hmm. You know, and not get sucked in all that world. Just you know? focus on the business. Yeah, yeah. Is that something you still want to do? No, <laughs> that's a young man's game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That last tour I did with them, I guess two years ago, was you know was 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 the final nail in the coffin for me because I mean. It was just brutal, you know. They th- those tours were booked for a tour bus, and we did it in a van, and it was just you know strung out exhaustion. I had a good helper here, you know, Ronnie Lee Gibson. He went with me, little Bo. He plays in the. He's like a really good musician here in town. Uh, plays in more bands than I've ever played in. He kind of saved the day because he had that youthfulness to help out with me. When I first moved to Tuscaloosa, I just wanted to be around musicians like that were doing things. And there was a really good band here in town uh, called the Penetrators. They were a surf band. Huge fan. Yeah. Yeah. I, I started out roadieing for them, like just setting up the drums, you know, just being being a little gopher for them because I just love to be around live entertainment, live music at that time. And back in, in the Tuscaloosa days, they, you know, had a lot more house parties back then. They, uh, they, they did shows setting up in parking lot. I remember uh, first show I did with the Penetrators was over by Tutwiler. They played it in a parking lot outdoors, you know, and I was like, wow, it's so cool. You know, people would come out. And I just wanted to be, you know, around live music. And then, you know, I started playing, you know, the first show I ever did was at the Chucker with that band Consumption. You know, we paid our dues. Like, the one thing about the Chucker and Egan's, they'll give new bands a shot without even listening to a tape, really. So it was like, I used to go to the Chucker and just beg and beg. Well, I got this band I want to play. They're like, okay, we have open mic night. When it ends at 1 in the morning, you can go on. Because back then, the chucker would go all night. So we waited till the, the last open mic guy sang. We set our rock equipment up and played to the sound guy. I was like, we did our first gig, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I played to the sound man. You still go by Sweet Dog? Yeah, or Craig, whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sweet Dog, that came from high school, right? Yeah, I, my original nickname is Sweets. Right. Uh, and then I guess whoever, I mean, trust me, I didn't go around. I'm Sweet Dog. <laughs> It's, it's when that Snoop Dogg record came out. It's when that got a fixed. Ah, okay. to it, so. If you ever anybody call me Sweets, that means they've known me since the okay. 80s. I have a sweet tooth. I eat a lot of candy. Remember that candy? The pick, uh, uh, Fun Dip? The Fun Dip. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. I'm the king of the Fun Dip. <laughs> Excellent. So June 1st, there's a show at Green Bar. Yeah, June 1st, uh, Sweet Dog Experience, opening for Lee Mains and the Glory Fires. We'll look for it. Thanks for thank doing you. this, man. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs>